Hey crew, Pastor Dave here, and thanks for joining us. We are in week two of our new series where we're journeying through chapters five through seven of the book of 1 Corinthians in a series we're calling Sex, Suits, Spouses, and Singles. That's right. It's an exciting series that we're in. Today we are in the second half of chapter five. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we started a conversation about how followers of Jesus handle ongoing sin within the community of the church. And Paul is writing to this community of believers, and he says to them, this is the beginning of chapter 5, there is sexual immorality among you. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. A man in the church is sleeping with his stepmother. Now, in case you missed last week, I need to let you know that this section of Scripture has some adult material in it. And so if you are watching with young children today and you weren't a part of last week, you might want to do a little preview before you continue just watching together. But last week, Paul addresses this situation in the Corinthian church by telling them that when ongoing sin is happening in the church, we must be willing to have the hard, difficult, direct conversations. And eventually, eventually, if there is not repentance, if there's not a willingness to turn away from sin and to change, we must remove people from the church. This is, again, an intense passage of Scripture. And today we continue with it. Today we are exploring this conversation further, asking what does Paul have to say about lifestyles of sin inside the church family? We're going to talk about three things. First, our concern. Paul's concern should be our concern. Second, our calling. And then finally, our challenge. Our concern, our calling, and our challenge. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 6. Your boasting, he says this to the Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Friends, this, this is the beginning of Paul's concern, and it should be our concern as well, that people in the church too often forget you are not just a you, you are part of an us. You are not just a you, you are part of an us. Because we live in a Western individualistic culture. This means that for you and me as Americans in the 21st century, our worldview says that we primarily see ourselves as a collection of individuals. We think like individuals. We act like individuals. We tend to value the individual over the community. However, in Eastern cultures and certainly in the ancient Near East, they thought not individualistically, but communally. They always thought of themselves not just as individuals, but as a part of the whole. Their identity, their very identity, who they thought of themselves as was always attached to their community. This is why in the Bible, you never just read about a dude named Bob. That's not, not how the Bible works, right? You always meet people in the Bible, and it's James, son of Alphaeus, from the tribe of Benjamin, from the nation of Israel. You meet Mary from Magdala, or, or Simon from Cyrene. Even Jesus himself is most often referred to 
as Jesus of Nazareth. That's right. He's sometimes called Jesus, the son of Joseph, or Jesus, the son of Mary. He's even called Jesus, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. But here's the point. The Bible and the Bible's way of thinking says you are always more than just an individual. You are part of a community, and that community is part of you. The Bible sees us as not just individuals, but as communal. Now, there are all sorts of implications for this reality, but the one that we're talking about today is this. A person's community, because we are communal people, a person's community bears responsibility for each individual member's sin. Let me give you an example. Some of you know um, and will remember the story in the Old Testament about a guy named Achan. It's a crazy story. It's in Joshua chapter 7. You can go back and read it if you have extra time this week. But I'll, I'll sum it up for you this way. Achan does a bad thing. He goes against God's will, against God's instruction, and he steals some gold. And because of this, God punishes the entire nation. One guy, Achan sends, the entire nation gets punished. Now to me, and maybe to you, that seems really unfair. If, if that's me, if I'm in that situation, I'm saying, what are you talking about, God? He, he did it. I didn't do it. We didn't do it. That was all him. But in the story, what you'll notice when you read the Bible is that no one says this to God. No one's arguing with God about the punishment. No one's saying like, you know, hey, we didn't do it. He did it. No, because they are operating from a different worldview. They all understand that we are responsible for each other's sin. They may not like the punishment. They may not like that Achan did it, but they understand that they share as part of his community in the responsibility. And friends, this is the same idea Paul is offering to us right here. He's saying we are responsible for one another in the church. Why? Because you are not just a you. You are part of an us. And your life and your choices, good and bad, have the power to impact and infect the people around you more than you even realize. So Paul says, hey, when there's people sinning in the church... One little, one little person, one little part can infect the entire community. One little person sinning has impact on the rest of the group. And so Paul says this, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this is maybe seems a little strange to you if you're not real familiar with the scriptures, but to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand a couple of things. First, what's this leaven and how does it work? Well, in the ancient world, when a person would go to bake some bread, they would get the dough all ready. You know, if you've baked bread before, you get the dough all ready. But before they put the dough in to bake, before they cooked it, they would pull off a little piece of dough and they would set it aside. Most often they would put it in some water. And what would happen is that over time, overnight, that little piece of dough would sour. It would ferment. And then... When it was time to bake 
a loaf of bread the next day, you'd take that little piece of fermented or sour dough called leaven and you'd mix it in with the whole new batch of dough. And then again, before you put that batch of dough in to bake, you'd pull a piece off and you'd set it aside. And then the next day, you'd add that piece, right? And so on and so forth. So you'd always have one piece of leaven from yesterday's bread in tomorrow's loaf. That's how leaven works. And so leaven carries with it this very clear image of bringing the old into the new. Leaven's about bringing the old into the new. Now, here's the second thing we need to know to understand what Paul is saying. If you remember in the Old Testament, one of the most famous stories in the entire scriptures is this moment when God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. And to do this, to deliver them, he brings 10 plagues on the entire nation of Egypt. 10 plagues come down on this nation. And then the final one is the most significant. It's the linchpin. It's the one that does the job. It's when the angel of death would come. Now, The angel of death is coming, and in order for the angel of death not to come to the homes of the Israelites themselves, they were to do something. Do you remember what they were supposed to do? They were to cover the door frames of their homes with the blood of an unblemished, spotless lamb. And if they would do this, then the angel of death would not visit their home. He would pass over and move on and their family would not be afflicted and in the scriptures in the story of the passover this is what happens the angel of death comes and the egyptians are afflicted but because of the blood the israelites are spared and through this last and final plague they are set free from slavery in Egypt. They are slaves no more. And now, as part of their freedom, as part of leaving their lives of slavery behind, God gives them another command. They're free. They're going. They're off. Slaves no more. But God says, as you go, as you leave this nation, only take with you unleavened bread. In fact, God gets really, really, really emphatic, really specific about this one. He says, go through your entire house. He says this to the Israelites. Go through your entire house and make sure that there's not even one smidgen of leaven in there. Get rid of it all. And the question is, why? Why does God say this? Why does God give this weird leaven command? Well, What God is doing here is he's giving his people a physical picture, a physical reminder that he has delivered them from slavery and he does not want even a smidge of their old life as slaves to be part of their new life of freedom that he has now given them. He does not want the old way of living to transfer into the new. So every year, friends, for centuries, when the Jews would celebrate the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread, they would go together. They would be reminded of this reality. They would be reminded, we are no longer slaves and we should not live as if we are. Fast forward now. 
to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, our passage today. Paul is now saying here, with that story, with that reality as a backdrop, he's saying this historical reality for the Jews is now a spiritual and eternal reality for Christians. Paul is reminding the church, he's reminding you and me as followers of Jesus Christ that we also have been set free from the bondage of slavery. But not just earthly slavery, not just slavery in Egypt or slavery to a person or to a nation, not, and not just set free simply by the blood of a lamb, but, but we have been set free from eternal slavery, from bondage to sin, and by the blood of the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for you and me on the cross. Paul is saying, my concern is that you, the church, have forgotten that you are like a new batch of dough and no part of your old sinful life in the world should follow you into your new life of freedom in Jesus. Why is Paul so concerned about ongoing sin in the church? Because it's counter to the gospel. It does not fit with the good news of Jesus. The gospel says you've been freed from sin, so why would you still live as if you were a slave? Why would you bring your old life into your new life? Because when you do, when you do, when you, when you live as a Christ follower, like a slave, other Christians get sucked into living the same way. This, friends, is Paul's great concern for the church. Let's keep going. Next, our calling. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter. This is the, a previous letter. We talked about this last week, a letter he's already written in the past. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Friends, Paul is addressing here uh, the church's relationship with the world, and he exposes for us two very common attitudes. Two ways that I believe Jesus' followers are tempted to engage with non-believers and with society around us. It was true back then. I think it's true for us still today. Paul says this. He says, these Corinthian Christians were tempted to do two things, scrutinize and separate. Scrutinize and separate. Scrutinize secular people and separate from secular society. Let me ask you, do you know any followers of Jesus who are tempted to do that today? I'll make it more personal. Do you ever find yourself wanting to simply judge the world around you and pull away from it? I do. I wrestle with both of these. And yet, I have to tell you this morning, it is not the way of Jesus. In fact, one of the reasons it was such a scandal for Jesus to be with and amongst 
the sinners and the tax collectors of his day is because there was a huge part of of the Jewish community, the religious community that advocated separating yourself from the sinful world around you as a way of living for God. To be holy, to really live for God, to really sell out for God, to be fully committed to him, they would say, you must separate yourself from the world. But then Jesus shows up and he says, this is not how it should go. Not with you, not with followers of mine. Yes, he says, you're called to be holy. Yes, he says, you are called to be set apart. Yes, he says, you are called to think and act and live and love differently than the world around you. But your calling isn't to scrutinize and to separate. In contrast, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, a Christian's relationship with the world is not, to, is not no contact, it's no conformity. I'll say that again. A Christian's relationship with the world is not no contact, it's no conformity. This is John chapter 17. Jesus is, is talking to his followers and he's praying for his followers. This is just before he will leave to go back to be with his father in heaven and we will be here without him. Here's what he says. He says, they are not of the world. He's talking about his followers. They are not of the world any more than I am of the, am of the world. He's saying they don't have the world's values. He's saying they they shouldn't share the world's convictions. They don't live for this world's temporal pleasures. However, verse 15, Jesus' words, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, but that you protect them from the world while they are in it. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's what Jesus says. God, as you sent me into the world, I am sending my followers into the world to to show the world a better way and offer them something more. Friends, our calling as followers of Jesus is to live in and amongst a sinful, broken, messed up and depraved world in a way that puts the sincere and truthful and generous and honest and fulfilling and satisfying way of Jesus on display for the world to see. And so I have to ask us, how are we doing How are are we doing? Are we as the church living into our calling or are we just scrutinizing and separating? Are we spending more time reaching out to the world, loving people in the world, offering hope and life and grace and truth to the world or criticizing the world and pulling back from it? Are we truly being the church? Because... I I know there's lots to be critical of. I I know these days, especially with 
the interwebs and information flowing and you knowing everything that every person on the planet seems to be thinking and, and feeling and doing. I know there is so, so much to be critical of and I understand the temptation. Move out of Portland and find some place to live that's more Christian. You know, just huddle together and like weather the storm. That is not our calling that is not our calling. We are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill in the world and not conformed to the world. Final point, our challenge. Verse 11, but now, Paul says, I am writing to you, Corinthians, to you, church, that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And I know this is a really stressful passage for you because most of you are thinking like, I'm pretty sure I'm a swindler. I don't know what a swindler is. We don't use that word anymore, but I might be one of them. Let me back up just for a minute. You know, at the beginning of this passage, if you back all the way up to the beginning of the chapter, it sure seems like Paul's main concern, his big like stressor is sexual immorality. And it, it is something he's concerned about. We'll talk about it throughout this series. Paul is concerned about sexual immorality, but it's not his big challenge to the church in this passage. In this passage, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church and even to us as the American church is this. You have become complacent about your sin. You've become complacent about your sin. You've gotten real good at seeing the sin of the world. You've gotten real proficient at pointing out the sins of other people, but you way too easily overlook sin in yourself. You'll notice that Paul opens up our section today talking about boasting. Verse 6, right at the beginning, he says, your boasting is not good. And it's kind of a weird way to start this section. It seems like that statement doesn't connect with the rest of the passage. At least that's how I felt when I first read it, right? Your boasting is not good. And then he moves into talking about like leaven and dough and all the things. Now, it only makes sense when you understand this word Paul uses, boasting. In Greek, it's the word kauhema, kauhema. And it means to glory or to give something weight and significance. Here's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, you Corinthians, you've been giving a lot of weight and a lot of significance to the things that you're good at as the church but you give very little weight, very little significance to the places where you struggle. And friends, I would argue that this is a temptation for every single one of us to do this same thing, to make the sins that, that we don't struggle with or the sins that we already have victory over, the big sins, the important sins, to think the places that we're strong to think about the places where we are really leaning in and doing well, to think about those places as the important things, the weighty things, the significant things to God. And then on the flip side, to minimize and give less weight and significance to the places where we are struggling, 
where we may not live up. And so Paul says, you're proud, you boast because you're so focused on your strengths. But let me tell you about the kind of habitual, ongoing, unrepentant sin that is unacceptable to the Lord in his church. Here's his list. Sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. You know what's significant about that list? Every single one of those habitual sins existed in the Corinthian church. They are all in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We've already heard that they had blatant sexual immorality right in their church. We'll learn later that they are struggling with greed and coveting one another's wealth. They're worshiping other gods. That's idolatry. They're breaking into factions and trash-talking one another, slandering each other even in, uh, in the church. They're, they're drinking too much alcohol. They're looking to substances. They're even drinking too much alcohol during communion. That's how bad it's gotten. So again... Here's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you're so proud. You're so focused on on where you're doing well. Take a long, hard look at yourselves. Take a long, hard look at your lives. Because none of these lifestyles are congruent with the gospel. None of these lifestyles fit with following, calling yourself a follower of Jesus. And here's why. Underneath, Every one of these sins, underlying every single one of them, is this main and driving idea. I need something to satisfy me. I am not full. I am not fulfilled. I am not satisfied. And so I'm looking for something to satisfy me. I'm looking for something in this world to fill me up. I'm looking to sex or I'm looking to money, or I'm looking to substances, or I'm looking to success, or I'm looking to an idol to satisfy my empty soul. And, and if that doesn't work, I'll then try to feel better about myself by tearing somebody else down. Slander. Again, who gives their lives to these things who looks to these kind who would look to these kind of things to bring meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment to their lives i'll tell you who friends people who don't have anything else people in this world paul is saying of course the people of this world are looking to the things of this world to satisfy their souls that's what we'd expect of them stop judging them for acting like non-believers they are non-believers but paul is saying this Here's where you should be concerned. Here's where you should be focused. If a person says they are a follower of Jesus, if a person is a person of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that you do not need any of these worldly things to satisfy you because you are already fully satisfied in Christ. He has already filled you up. That's what Jesus offers you. Through grace, he offers you God's love and acceptance and significance and fulfillment. And so you no longer need those things of this world to fill up your life. You can enjoy those things. 
They're gifts from God. You can use them appropriately, right? They're there for you, but they do not have to consume you. You don't need them. They're there, but you're filled and satisfied already in Christ. Friends, this passage, the challenge of this passage for the church in Corinth and for our church, for you and me, for us as the church, is where are you looking in your life for fulfillment, satisfaction, significance, meaning? Are you fulfilled? Are you satisfied in Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Christ where he is all you need and now you are free to enjoy the things of this world, to walk with him, but you do not need You do not need money. You do not need sex. You do not need success. You do not need attention. You do not need to be be beautiful. You do not need the things that this world needs to satisfy your soul. Are Are you calling yourself a Christian, but then living like a person who is seeking after the things of this world? Friends, if that's you, if you're listening to this message and you're thinking, yeah, there's some there's some things in this world that I turn to for satisfaction. There's some things I'm leaning on for significance or meaning or joy in my life. Then just do this today. Go to your heavenly father, turn to him with me in prayer and say, God, I want you to pull those things out of my life. I want you to fill up my soul with you because I don't want to need anything in this world but you. If that's you today, if you need, just need a fresh reminder of the satisfaction that we're offered in Jesus, pray with me this morning as we close. Father, thank you for just the offer of giving us what our souls truly desire, of filling us up, Lord, to the place where we really are secure, where we really are satisfied where we don't have to seek out the things of this world to give our lives meaning and significance and purpose. I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you'd reveal to us right right here in our church, in, in our Cedar Mill Bible Church, American Church, 21st century, are we looking to money, Lord? Are we looking to sex or substances or success? Or is there some idol in our life that we are looking to, Lord, for significance. God, if so, would you show that to us and we just confess it to you, Lord. We ask that you would truly be our God, that you would be the source of our satisfaction, that you would move in. Lord, you make a way. You are the way maker, the one who pulls those idols out of our hearts and lives. And God, may we be a church that is safe enough, that is grace-filled enough, that we can confess these things to one another. May it all be for your glory, Jesus. We love you and we thank you and we pray it in your name. Amen.